All right. So some of you out there might remember that I did a number of episodes on evolutionary psychology. I became slightly obsessed with the topic and for some reason decided to read and write a lot about it and make a bunch of episodes. I'm fascinated with the topic and I've received a lot of different emails from listeners saying they either like the episodes or they hate the episodes. I've had a lot of different reactions. Some people, I, last week or a few weeks ago, I, I went back and forth with a YouTube guy who called me a mangina because <laughs> I was talking about feminism. <laughs> and I said, so what's your evidence that I'm a mangina? And so we went back and forth. But anyway, so that's just some of the uh, <laughs> feedback that I've received. And along these lines, I received an email from a listener, Paulette, who wanted to come on the podcast and ask us a bunch of questions about evolutionary psychology. So why don't you introduce yourself, Paulette? Hello, my name is Paulette Perhatch. I'm a writer living in Seattle, and I won the Hugo House Fellowship last year, and I'm currently getting my MFA, and I really love stories that incorporate science into them, where you just kind of feel a little bit more grounded in the work, because they have all these great facts. You can really tell that the that the writer has read widely, which is one of my goals, so I really want to like be not expert, but amateur expert at evolutionary mm. psychology, like know what I'm talking about and not just do armchair stuff. So this was kind of a step in that direction. Well, I am really excited about that goal for you. And I am honored with influencing your path along these, these lines because I have a lot of opinions about it as I do about pretty much everything. But anyway, welcome to the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. My name is Humberto Castaneda. I'm a photographer at Paper magazine. Well, welcome to the podcast, Paulette. You have a number of questions that you emailed us that you would like us to answer. So why don't you fire away? So I went to South America and I was in the countryside of Paraguay and I saw graffiti on a dock in Sharpie. And I was like, uh, I really noticed that it could be categorized the same exact way. It was like, who's hooked up with who? Someone plus someone cuss words, drawings of human genitalia, and I was like wondering, so this is the first question, <laughs> why is graffiti the same all around the world? And you're, you're probably aware that they found Roman graffiti that's the same. Mm -hmm. Like jo gross jokes, male, uh, sorry, human genitalia, and rumors and gossip in Roman times. Right. And I'm sure the cave drawings are all those little deer and stuff. There's like people calling each other deer names and who knows what else. Yeah. It's probably the same stuff. Right. So it's, it's probably not recent. <laughs> right. So the question, if I might paraphrase, is what is the evidence regarding the evolutionary psychology basis of graffiti, right? Have we evolved a particular psychological mechanism, as they call it, that compels or rewards or causes the behavior that results in graffiti, right? So what, what are the facts that we know about graffiti? I, I don't, I, I, this, is, this is me just taking a yep. guess, but I would say it's mostly men. I don't know those stats. Well, I'm just going to take a guess, at least in our community. I, I don't know of, I know only of a few women that will do graffiti mostly. It's men. And mostly it's young men, right? Mostly young men. You don't see a lot of 65 year old dudes writing, you know, penises on the side of a building. 
That might be true. I guess the reason I'm hesitating a little bit is because I, in my culture, uh, no, what, like I seriously growing up in Colombia, graffiti was actually uh, in the 80s, especially it was kind of used in different ways too, because it was a very lot, lots of revolutionary type messaging would go into graffiti's. Uh. I feel like there might be an underlying thing, which is that throughout most of human history, there's never been uh, mass media available. Oh, sorry, mass communication mechanisms right. available to the masses. Right. And so if you wanted to get a message across, yeah. what could you do? Right. Well, to the disenfranchised masses. To the disenfranchised masses. So that's another right. element. So the third thing that I just came up with uh, out of, you know, off the top of my head was that it's mostly disenfranchised people. And, and, it's not right. like you have CEOs because they, they, can, they can pay for an advertisement in a, in a magazine. So, so those are some just facts. So, so that, and, and then I'm glad you're bringing up Colombia and Paraguay because one of the evolutionary psychology tenets that a lot of evolutionary psychologists don't actually follow is trying to demonstrate universality across mm. cultures. Because if we find a phenomenon in one particular culture, but no other cultures mm-hmm. have that phenomenon, then we don't have a lot to stand on in terms of making the argument that there's an evolutionary basis to that particular behavior. So so we're looking at different cultures and, and we can see that in a lot of cultures going way back. And so that's another thing is not only cultures in our time, but actually looking for historical evidence of right. cultures. Right, right. And and we can go back to cave paintings and this compulsion to, to, to yeah. put stuff on a wall. So, you know. And like the, the hieroglyphs, right? Right. Like, I mean, they were more pretty and organized, but still graffiti. Right. right. This is just speculation in, in my view, but there are some within evolutionary psychology and social psychology that will that will make the speculation that graffiti is what they call signaling it's a way for people to signal that they have a evolutionary advantage over other suitors sexually so to speak so if you're a young man and you want to attract women then one way to do that is to put your name on the side of a building and and even cross out the names of your of your rivals rivals <laughs> and this is a way saying look at me look how brave i am and i can attest because in seattle there's a fairly robust graffiti culture and i've had a number of clients who have given me the inside scoop on oh. this and they will absolutely say that women will have sex with them because they're well known. No way. Absolutely. What? Absolutely. In fact, if you just take a moment when you're walking around Seattle and actually remember the different tags that you see, yeah. you'll see uh, who is dominating that area and, and, and who is getting popular. In you got to be kidding me. And there's websites dedicated to this. And Are you starting to think about graffiti? Yes, <laughs> I'm going to start graffiti. What the hell? So, so, Forget Grinder or Tinder or whatever. Right. So signaling, think peacocks, you know, this kind of stuff. It's a way to get women to have sex with you in a very real way or <laughs> it's a way that we've inherited from our ancestors that we feel compelled to do that doesn't actually <laughs> still give us any benefit. Another evolutionary psychology thing that, that they will talk about is group cohesion. Like, warriors, come out and play. <laughs> well, you know, different gangs right. will have their gang sign in their area as a way of saying this this is, this is our us. territory this and, is and not only our territory but but this is us we are a group mm-hmm. and and there's a benefit you could imagine evolutionary wise to to saying we are together i have your back yeah. against other people 
And then the third thing is marking your territory, which is actually an anti-fighting technique. It's a way of trying to avoid Mm. because if you're in constant battles with the enemy, then the chance of both groups dying goes up. That's right. Whereas if both groups have a strategy of avoiding fighting, <laughs> then you right. will have a greater chance of survival. survival yeah. And one of the ways to do that is to say, this is my territory and that is your territory and never the twain shall meet. I, I'm sorry. I'm having this image in my head of this gal's riding the subway. She's got a pad of paper and she's thinking and stuff. This guy comes by and makes a symbol on the paper and she looks up. She's like, that's you? He's like, that's right. And then they fall in love. <laughs> <laughs> Well, what, what I've, what, this is just anecdotal, but there will be parties essentially, um, uh, in certain parts of Seattle to witness a famous person doing a Griffey. tag or what they call uh-huh. paint or throw up, or I can't know what they call bomb. They call it, you know, there's different slang for it, but <laughs> I have um, seen, I've been to parties where people are throwing up. Is that what you mean? Yeah. It's, it's pretty much the same. Like, did you ever see one plus one equals three? Have you ever seen that around Seattle? Yes. Oh, wait, I have seen that. I That's have. you? No. Let's fall in love. <laughs> so that guy was a hugely famous graffiti dude, and there was all sorts of lore about who he was. And you can imagine, as with any famous person, if you're that dude, then you're going to get some attention, be- some benefits. <laughs> <laughs> Am I allowed to say a name if it's a curse word? Yeah. Um, so we have shit barf. On Capitol Hill, that, that, that is a tag that tag? I see a lot. Yeah, oh. yeah. And you know, in this I neighborhood, really... we have musubi, which is a Japanese. Yeah, it's a thing. Musubi. Yeah. So, if you ran into shit barf, would you be? Oh, I would be like, I have been waiting for this for so long, yeah. and then I would make sweet love to him. Yeah. all night long. Right, nice. Because I saw the word shit barf over and over. It's like like marketing now, where if someone sees a name over and over, right. they're like, "You're shit barf." Oh, my, oh God. my gosh, shit barf. <laughs> oh, shit barf. <laughs> well, you're in the bathroom. <laughs> it just, everything oh, reminds everything you. Everything you do in a toilet, that's your yeah. name. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I loved you when I took that poop. <laughs> Why do I have oh, to go wow. to the bathroom all of a sudden? <laughs> um, and barf. Glad I really classed up your podcast. <laughs> yeah, guys. I know. We, we had it, like, we long running, years of no cussing or anything. And Suddenly you come oh, on the podcast man. and it's all shit and barf. <laughs> She's tagging. She's throwing it up. She's going to start tagging tonight. <laughs> so other uh, speculation that I might throw out is a psychodynamic perspective of a narcissistic need. So when you're growing up, you, as a young child, you are developmentally, naturally very narcissistic. You believe the world revolves around you. Your parents are there only for you. I didn't. The world is there <laughs> for you. <laughs> you only say that because you never grew out of it. <laughs> um, I was perfect as a child. <laughs> yeah. And you slowly grow out of that, but we retain some of that narcissism naturally. And as we grow older and older, we, we continue to shed that to some extent. Wisdom actually will replace that. But because we still have that narcissistic need, we have a need to be seen. We have a need to make ourselves known. We have a need to make ourselves special because we all believe we're a special Snowflake, which or is great. Shit barf. <laughs> or shit barf. And, you know, they don't tag things like world peace. In fact, actually, there was one graffiti artist that was in the 99 tunnel that I would laugh at every time. This was like 10 years ago. And they would graffiti these big graffitis. And 
I don't know if that's what you call it, but if that's the noun, but they would have these big displays of graffiti that were not narcissistic. And it would be things like, you know, like be my friend or something. It was like just sort of hipster graffiti, uh-huh. I guess it might be. But anyway, that's a minority. Most people, it's all about them. It's their right. name. It's me, me, me. I'm awesome. I'm the best. And so one might argue that they're still working out their, nar- <laughs> their narcissism. Right. <laughs> and so it serves that because w- when they go home at night, they go, wow, a lot of people are now going to see that and know that right. I was there and that that's my name. You that's know, that, right. That's me. So I don't know. What do you guys think about that? It seems to be a big aspect of it. I think you can find ego in almost everything. And there's some stuff that there's a lot of art that's for ego. And then there's a lot of art that I think fulfills this, or sorry, fulfill these deeper needs for, like you said, kind of um, spreading word about certain things if you're disenfranchised. And it's really interesting. It's a lot I've never thought about. I'm going to get a bunch of story ideas out of this. I'm really excited. (laughs) I do think so. I I saw a couple of documentaries on graffiti a while ago, though. One of them that involved Banksy or whatever his name is. And there was another one. And I do think that there is some real artwork going on in that scene. Totally, yeah. And there's some real talent and some real messaging that's happening. But I also think that there is a ton of just like what you're saying, marking or or self-display and stuff like that. I know mine are all marking and self-display. Yeah. (laughs) And it's funny to see how graffiti has evolved because if you watch The Warriors, which was in the 70s, the Warriors, it was just a crappy W. (laughs) Yeah. It was just W. It was like, it was as if I, who am not an artist, who is not an artist, just wrote a W with spray paint. Well, remember V, V the final battle? Right. It was like that. It was actually kind of worse than that. But but now, yeah, it's all super elaborate. and, And I actually know... I had clients that would spend hundreds of hours at home just repeatedly on a pad of paper practicing their tag until they got it the way they look at it. That's cool. I mean, it's like, I think, you know, you made me think about even in writing, you can be definitely like all about yourself and Mm -hmm. just totally, you know, your own life. And I think it takes, it's a stage in art that you get to where you get past that and you think, what value can I bring to others? Mm. You're not thinking about yourself tagging, you're thinking about like the experience of someone walking by this painting and that is where art is and you kind of have to get yourself out of the way. Mm. And I think it takes kind of a long time to do that. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, wisdom. (laughs) You're like, why doesn't anyone want to buy my stories or buy my art? And it's like, because you just did it to make yourself feel special. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Another guy in this this neighborhood is Sissy's Rule. I like that guy. Sissy's Rule. Yeah, Sissy's Rule. Oh, Sissy's Rule. (laughs) Sissy's Rule. I thought thought it was a girl named Sissy and she has a rule. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it might be. No, it's plural Sissy's Rule. I like that guy in in this neighborhood. Anyway, you have a second question. Fire Uh, Yes. Um, So why are people embarrassed of that which is most natural such as when you have a crush on someone when you have sexual feelings for someone or going to the bathroom can, can we not talk about this it's too I know it's, it's embarrassing, embarrassing. <laughs> you should see what the girls at my work go through when you have to go to the bathroom what you have to stake out the handicap stall yeah are you kidding me wait slow down what can we split it up because this is really interesting let's split it up into the first one which is the people embarrassed about admitting is it is let me make sure I understand are you talking about the embarrassment of like saying that you're attracted to someone or talking about sex or no i think it's yeah being attracted to someone it's you know it's there's always that very scary period where it's so okay so let's tackle that one you're like no i don't (laughs) can can we tackle that one first because i feel like the second one's maybe related but i feel like it's a little different and potentially hilarious so here's my thing about the the sexual feelings and things like that i i believe it stems from fear of rejection Mm -hmm. so i i think my my hypothesis is that we 
um, we have learned at an early age when you start being like, I like you, and then two days later your heart's broken, that you're like, oh, it's dangerous. This thing about sharing what I like and don't like seems dangerous. And so then you start, and you see those around you, and you see that, oh, they're making fun of Joey because he said that he likes that girl. And then you start developing this thing about like, oh, I better not say that I like someone because it's fear. It's it's a fear. It's like I will either be rejected or made fun of. And I don't now I don't know where the making fun of stems from. Is it is it projection or what? But I do think that eventually by the time we're adults, it's like, I don't want to tell you I like you because if you say that you hate me immediately, then I'm heartbroken. I want to wait till I'm sure you like me. And then when I feel it's safe, I'll tell you I kind of like you. And I, and I use the L word because, you know. Can so you imagine Can you imagine uh, an evolutionary advantage to that tendency? Okay, so an evolutionary advantage would be that, like, you can optimize your chances to actually have intercourse by not <laughs> playing your hand too soon. Because but it, if but you reject that immediately, then now you can't have intercourse, right? So you have to lead. But, but let me, let me, yeah, let me. Okay. So this is where you know speculation comes in. So mm-hmm. say we have two tribes yeah. back back in the old days, yeah, in yeah. The Serengeti, uh, Pleistocene era. We have two tribes. One tribe produces genetic mutations that compel the young people to uh, express their lust and love for everyone all the time. Mm-hmm. Whenever they have a lustful feeling, they express it, and mm-hmm. and there's that there's that tendency psychologically mm-hmm. in evolution. And there's another tribe that's more like us, so we say, yeah. <laughs> more subdued. Yeah, yeah. And um, now, when I just really think about it logically, I can't see an advantage either way because I could see an advantage to being indiscriminate, you know, because it's a numbers game to some extent. Like you, you know, what's that saying? You ask a hundred girls if they want to have sex, you're only, you only get slapped in the face 99 times. You know? <laughs> and so, you know, it would seem that the, the, that would the be a hundred time you get slapped in the ass. Yeah. <laughs> if that's what you're looking for. And so that's, I could see an evolutionary advantage to that. Well, well what about this then? What about the pairing this up with the need for uh, how do you call oh, for for uniqueness? So uh, genetically, we look for unique markers because that's rarer and that might produce uh, uh, more advantageous mutations. Not that we rationalize these things, and it might be more unique, something that's harder to get. And so I might prefer something that's harder to get because I might think it's more unique. Okay, so and this so is all speculation. It's a speculation, but that way, if you come at, if you come at me, you're like, I love you. You're the best thing. Then you're too easy. You're not unique. Right. But this guy, I can't get him, or this gal, right. that's unique. So that's I just want to pause and say this is the black hole of evolutionary <laughs> psychology, which is the magic of speculation. Sure. And there this is one of the one of the things I want you to leave here with as you're writing and, and talking with other people, Paulette, is that they call these things just so stories. It's it's uh, I think it's Kiplinger or some some author that came up with this phrase or it was attributed to him where essentially the idea is is that we just make up stories and then we look for data to support it. Sure. Yeah. And then and we claim that that is evidence that we evolved to be this way. So Berto's hypothesis here is that he could probably devise a study that might, you know, reflect that to some extent. And then he, and then the headline in the news is, <laughs> "We prefer uniqueness. Right. That's why we're very selective with our lust or something." Right, right. And another person could come up with the opposite finding, 
And so this is the field of evolutionary psychology is there's just a lot of speculation and no caveat saying, by the way, I'm speculating. <laughs> Can I ask, you know, that's one thing that's so frustrating as someone who wants to be educated in this stuff is like all the studies. I mean, I saw a study in the New York Times that was like, just is exercise bad for your teeth? And I was like, come on, like, come on. You, like, just shut up. Like, you know, like, just tell like, me what's important. So there's what, no priorities here. You know, how does, I don't know if there's too much of a tangent, but I'd love to know how how the average person can stay educated in in like the scope of the finding or the scope of the importance of the finding because right. it's like you, right. all the information comes at you at the same speed and volume, right. like it's all the same importance. So it's so hard. Right, it is. It's basically learning another language and another culture. Mm-hmm. Because I can remember a time before I was a scientist, before I was a professor, where I was in your shoes, where I would hear something in the news and I'd be like, oh, okay. And then a year later, an opposite. It's the opposite, yeah. Yeah. Fat is bad for you. Then it was sugar. That's great for you. Yeah. And then it was cholesterol is bad for you. Eggs are bad for you. Now eggs are great for you. You know, And so it, it, it drives you crazy. But, but one of the guiding principles that I follow now is I basically don't believe anything in the news. <laughs> by the way and so because usually usually that story would have been derived from one very narrow study about triglyceride effect right. on long term fat absorption of cells and blah 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 like right. super caveated right. and the, the headline turns into fat's bad for you but that is that's the point of the news is right. to learn things not to yeah, be exposed to things that you're just like nope that's probably yeah. not true because I yeah. read it here that's the old purpose of the news the new purpose of the news <laughs> is to make money is to drive people to click. Right? I don't know that there was an old purpose. By well, that. the original purpose of journalism was to inform the public, yeah. to, to, yeah, to inform the facts. Some of us have our journalism degrees. Stink right. eye. Can you hear my stink eye? <laughs> the, and now it's all about how many clicks do you get? And you don't get clicks when you say, there's a bunch of research and we don't know what it means. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but you will get clicks when you say, you know, exercise, make your teeth fall out. So sad. The reason I'm, I'm skeptical is because media has been controlled forever by the governments and the governments have always wanted to control the message. So I don't even know. I'm sure there's been idealists in every culture at all yeah. times. But the mass media has probably always been skewed. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I, I feel like there was at least, and maybe there is still today, but I think in our clickable world, I think it, it's very confusing. And, mm-hmm. and yeah. so basically, I don't believe anything that's in the news. And what I do is I actually seek out sources that are credible. Like if you go to Scientific American, for instance, mm-hmm. in general, not always for sure, then you will find a, a accurate, so to speak, consensus-based discussion about a topic. Whereas if you go to like the history channel.com or, or even psychology today, sometimes honestly, then, then you're going to find other kinds of things. My cat is going to, I will say this in defense of modern media. Good job managing. Like, I think the, the risk we had before was actually the illusion of authority because you would have everyone would tune in for the eight o'clock news or whatever the clock was. Right. And it was this deep authoritative male voice usually saying, you know, there's studies that blah, 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 blah. You know what? When you listen, I remember as a kid, that's the word of God as far as I was concerned. They found it. They figured it out. And you know what? Many of those were also right. They were still not right in anything. Nowadays, at least... Unless you're a kid or someone really uninformed, you start seeing like the pull, you're pulling the curtain and being like, what? Oh, wait a minute. These are all some, some weird magicians trying to pull our, 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 our the, the wool over our eyes because in reality, no, no one's got the fact. Yeah. And so it's almost like you know that it's not real. That's why I love but- John Stewart. <laughs> 
Yeah. Right. <laughs> he just yeah. points it out. Right. And you're just like, this is sad. That's another principle I follow is I try to gather as much opinion as I can, even from sources that don't usually align with what I believe. Like even watching Fox News, which I'll just come out and say is not in line with typically the way I think. But in order to really understand a topic, you have to get various different opinions and let it kind of simmer in you, even if... And I'm not saying we should be in the middle. I'm just saying we shouldn't like live in an echo chamber. You know yeah. what I mean? We shouldn't live in an echo chamber. <laughs> it's just very difficult to find time to do that when you're looking at Facebook all day. Right. So I Wait, like to, I learned most of my news from Facebook these days. <laughs> I always just read the headline. I'm like, I'll like tell my boyfriend, I'm like, did you hear that? Da, da, da. And he's like, oh, like what? Ask me any other detail. I'm like, I don't know. I, I don't know. That I don't know. And that brings me to my third strategy, which is know an expert and email them and ask them and they'll tell you what's oh. up. Like your doctor, for instance, you know. So email your doctor and say, if I exercise, are my teeth going to fall out? And, and let your doctor kind of sift through the data. Okay, now that's fair. I have run into this problem, and I'm sure I do it in ma- my photography area of expertise with Paper Magazine, but you email someone or you talk to someone who's uh, in a field, and there's this human reaction that some of them get, which is by, by being asked, they assume this mantle of omnipotence, yeah, yeah. and then they tell you more than they really know. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you can also get well, misinformation even from authorities. In sometimes. my experience... The slight, the, the somewhat insecure expert will do that. Sure. It, the more secure the expert, the more that they're able to say, I have no idea. Yeah, that makes sense. That anyway, makes sense. Um, like for instance, as we talk about evolutionary psychology, I'll tell you, all of my education has been from diving into reading about it for a couple months and responding to a lot of emails. I'm not an evolutionary psychologist. There are people that are much more educated about this sure. than them. So, so that's why I keep saying there's a lot of speculation here. So let's talk about the poop. Well, well. Before we do that, okay. though, but the, the the embarrassment about sex. So, evolutionary psychology. This is again speculation, and I'm sure there's research backing this up. But one one some there's a lot of discussion around sex and evolutionary psychology and what uh, motivates quote unquote mate selection and and lust behavior, these kinds of things. But but one thing that sometimes gets discussed is the psychological mechanism that discourages family members from having sex with each other. Mm. You you don't want dad having sex with daughters, you don't want sons having sex with moms, you don't want siblings having sex with each other because it leads to more genetic problems. Yeah. And of course they didn't know that back then. So how do you select for a psychological... So you have to select for a psychological mechanism that makes it instinctual not to have sex with your family members. And so one way to do that is to have kind of an opposing force on lust. And so it's fine to have lust under some circumstances, but not all circumstances. That's kind of the message of the shaming regarding sex, sexual attraction. It's like you can have sexual attraction, but not all the time. There's a time and a place for it, right? And so if in that tribe that I proposed where they just indiscriminately uh, express lust everywhere, you might increase the chances of siblings and family members having sex with each other and then bad things happening from that. So that's, again, total speculation, but that's one thing that gets Mm. talked about sometimes. Okay. Hard to imagine, right? It's like... Really, like we would have sex with our siblings if right. we didn't. But if you think about it, we're naturally disgusted with it. Right. It's naturally disgusting, you know. And so, or one would make the argument that it's naturally disgusting and not and not a cultural 
thing that's taught to frosted us. Frosted family members. So, they're naturally disgusting. So <laughs> that's so that's the other point, Paula. I wanna I wanna grant you today. Grant you. To just spout out of my out of my stupid uh, pie hole is <laughs> is to is to tell you that uh, trying to demonstrate that we didn't learn this culturally is a very difficult thing to do because we learn so much culturally. We learn so much from our culture. We learn so much from our families and our parents that it's difficult to determine what's what's instinctual and programmed, so to speak, into our brains at birth and what is learned, you know? Do we learn sexual shame or is that innate? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Uh, One thing to throw in here too could be uh, looking at other species because I know that Mm -hmm. that in many courtships are are very complex and complex in the sense that they go through several steps that seem completely unnecessary and they seem very akin to the I don't want to tell you too much right away. Stuff like I was just reading about these birds that build these nests and they're like these circular things. And they, they make sure that they use bigger rocks and bigger sticks towards the back so that it looks as even as possible. So that when they stand in front of it, they stand out and not the background because they're trying to display their plumage. And so complex, right? Yeah. And so uh, it's a little indirect, granted. But I bet you that if you could study uh, mating habits throughout different species and maybe more related to humans and stuff, you could maybe find... Find more examples of uh, withholding or slow courtships that could say, well, there seems to be this seems to be not confined to just human society, right. which might be evidence that it's not just societal and blah blah. Right. So that's another piece of evidence that they look for is not only cross cultural in modern times, but also in history, but also cross species. You know, what do we see, particularly in uh, species that are closely closely related to us? The uh, but the the problem with that is that we are different species. Yeah. So by nat- by definition, we have a different genetic code. The other thing is is often what is the the assumption there is that they don't have culture and that they don't learn. The closer you get to us in our in our cousins, the the more culture they have. There is sure. absolutely culture within chimpanzees and yep. and bonobos. So so it gets again it, it it's hard sometimes to figure out the difference between what's learned and what's ingrained in us. Mm-hmm. The other thing is even if you find it across all cultures all around the world, there's a possibility that all cultures all around the world just happen to teach all their children the same thing. That's that's possible. It the likelihood goes down, but you know it seems possible. So just to name another couple other evil psych things, and we'll move on. But um, another reason why we might shame people for sex is to discourage them from having too many partners and therefore too many children, and therefore they can't take care of their own children, which you can certainly imagine, right? That's why that's the supposition. That's the assumption is that we pair up because it's a greater chance. We give our children a greater chance of them growing up to adulthood, therefore passing on our genes, than if we don't partner up at least for the right. first five years right, or seven right, right. years or something. That makes sense? Yeah. I could see maybe that you could even argue that at least on the female side, it might be advantageous to be careful of how you distribute your limited supply of egg as right. well. And so if you're showing affection left and right, you, I guess you could argue it from both sides because one is you could find more advantageous sperm quicker or something, but who knows? I'm saying right or wrong, you could make an argument along those lines, but you're right. They're all hypotheses. They're hard to... Uh, and, and other species will do just that. They yeah. will have sex with every single man in the tribe 
every single male in the, yeah. in the tribe as a way of making it so all the males in the tribe think there's a chance that that's <laughs> my son and, and daughter, oh, and therefore I won't kill. So, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Like, it's yeah. hard to, to lock that right. down. The other thing is I'll <laughs> say is that it could be completely cultural, meaning, yeah. you know, the various different things that we have, like patriarchy. We come from a long lineage of various cultures of patriarchy where men control everything. And so one of the things you want to control is women's sexuality. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways you do that is by shaming everyone about their sex, particularly women, which is what we do, right? We right. particularly right. shame shame women. That's a good point. Yeah. yeah. What's your next question? Um, oh, the, the poop. Oh, poop. Okay, yeah. So my friend told me that I think it was Jefferson or something. He's like, he's like, I don't know why people are embarrassed to go to the bathroom now. Jefferson used to like give orders sitting on the toilet, like make his, you know, assistant take notes <laughs> while he was going to the bathroom. And I'm like, why? It's like the most natural thing in the world. Everyone does it, yet each individual feels like this is horribly embarrassing. Are you not very shameful about your poop? Um, I've been in Peace Corps, so not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're like lucky if you don't shit your pants during Peace Corps. Basically, oh, really? it happens to a fair number of people. Oh, yeah. really? of course. <laughs> I was one of the lucky ones, but still, you have to yeah. go to the bathroom in some pretty gnarly places yeah. without piracy. I mean, well, let me ask you: when you're across, you know, seas or abroad, do other cultures treat poop the same way that we Seattleites do? <laughs> no. Oh my god, it was so funny. My host mom was in the outhouse. Behind my house, they had a modern bathroom in their house, but they still went poo in the outhouse. And she's just out there without the door on. And I look up and notice her, and she's just smiling and waving at me, like, thinks it's so funny that I'm seeing where her poo. Where is this? Just behind my house no, in no, Peace Corps. No, but where was In where was Paraguay. Paraguay. Oh, in Paraguay. Where was this? It was coming out of the butt. <laughs> <laughs> from the butt? <laughs> Do you not know where poop I, comes I've never from? pooped. Yeah. <laughs> Um, man, you I'm must- so embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> right. So right there, right away, we see evidence that there isn't an evolutionary basis for shame around pooping because around the globe, you see different attitudes about pooping. So right away, we see that it's not it doesn't there's not a lot of evidence that it's an it's an instinct. Right. Um, plus, you you can imagine cavemen not having really the luxury of having shame well, ab- about absolutely. it. And, and this is a case where we can look at species very immediate to ours and distant ones and everything. They throw and it at people. No one gives a <laughs> shit. Literally. <laughs> you know, my girlfriend was in China and she was on a bus trip and they stopped and she's like, I had to go so bad. And the only bathroom was a square ditch where everyone was, you're like squatting over the ditch, but like facing in everyone just looking at each other, all going poo. And she's like, I had to do it. I had to go. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, I've heard of when, I don't know if you did this, but sometimes you just go in a big pit. Like, Circle like, poop. <laughs> yeah, you just go in this big, it's just like a crater that gets bigger and bigger as as it gets wider and wider from, from shit. And, and you want to poop kind of on the shit, but you don't want to step in the shit. And so someone will hold your hands as you bend down and sort of stick your butt out <laughs> so you don't shit on your foot. Oh, no. Oh, God. God oh, bless no. America. See, you know, in high school, when I moved up here, uh, it was a little bit of a culture shock because in the in the locker rooms, there were no stall doors. Oh so you're sitting there. The guy's showering right here. This guy's peeing. You're going poop. 
And you're talking, and the guy's like, hey, so how about that the throw in the game? Right? Are you ready for tonight's meet? And you're like, dude, I'm wiping right now. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> but that was, so I was like, wow, they don't, they don't. But it was in the guy's bathroom. In the girl's bathroom, apparently, that's not the case. They had stall doors and everything. And they had stall um, shower uh, walls as well. Whereas in the guy's uh, showers, it was a free-for-all. There's, there's no barriers to entry. <laughs> And right. so it's really different, actually. Right. Yeah, and like being ashamed of like your body. I don't know. It's really, it's really weird. Sometimes I feel like it's so hard to keep in mind that like we are just a collection of millions of atoms circling in outer space. Yet I don't want anyone to see my butt. You know, <laughs> like those two things are true at the same time. And it's just like I don't know. I feel a lot of times as a human being that evolved from as an as an animal I feel like embarrassed of my feelings like there's a part of me that knows better but that's part of me that's still an animal well our country or our culture western culture in particular has spent you know decades and centuries programming all of us (laughs) to be shameful about all these things (laughs) and for various different reasons that I, I won't go into but understand that those attitudes are particular to particular cultures. I mean, just look at National Geographic. Yeah. There are people in other cultures that for apparently have have no thoughts, don't have the same thoughts we do yes. about showing certain parts of their body right. or having certain quote-unquote flaws shown. Right. I mean, Berto, as a photographer of Kim Kardashian, for instance, you know... Wait, I didn't say I did that, but go the, ahead. The uh, Photoshopping is even making it a million times worse, right? It's just this, this comparison that we do because we haven't evolved the ability to see the, the, the quote-unquote objective truth that this is a Photoshopped person. I want to know about that more because I just... I'm working on a story about it because I used to work at a women's magazine... And it's a long story. I won't tell you the whole thing. But I just read Airbrushed Nation that was kind of about that. And I want to write an article about it. Like, can we can we consciously decide that – can we consciously know, like, that is airbrushed? It sounds like you just said we can't. Like, do you register that woman that you see as one of your competitors and hence rate yourself – you're like, well, I saw 100 women today that were more beautiful than me. Right. And whether or not they come from a computer, does how does that affect someone? Absolutely. And they've done studies on this because it's pretty easy to study. You essentially have a group of 100 women and another group of 100 women, and you expose the 100 women to a bunch of Photoshopped pictures of, of women, and you expose the other group of people to a different, and then you ask them to rate their own attractiveness at the end of this. And there's a there's a marked difference between those two people, between those two groups of people. Um, and it makes intuitive sense, right? Even though these are smart women that understand, even if you told them, my guess would be that these are Photoshopped. I mean, when I see before and after Photoshop pictures, when I see... If, if I'm exposed to the photoshopped picture, I'm like, I don't see any Photoshop in there because they're so good at it. And then you see the real picture and you're like, whoa, like they really altered that. And then you look at their arms and you're like, yeah, I guess the arms do look really abnormally thin <laughs> or the waist looks just. But when you first see it, they do it in a way that misses, messes with your head and, and mm. you can't see the objective truth. But even if they didn't Photoshop because Photoshop didn't exist you know, right. all the time. Models ha- happen to be a particular body shape. Right. And so just that alone will mess with your head. So, so and here's the other thing. It's, it's impossible in our culture not to be ashamed of going to the bathroom because you, you got to consider, is your hair looking good enough today? Is that the right shirt that you're going to wear to school? Wait a minute. 
are those shoes, you're going to stand in those shoes today in front of all those kids at the party. Is that what you're going to do? So when you put all that together, and that's what we all go through, right? Especially kids. and It's like you're second-guessing every aspect of your appearance, how you look on Facebook, what you're going to say. You're telling me you're going to go to poop in front of all these kids? No way. Yeah. Right? No, you're not going to do it. Yeah, not unless you Photoshop that Not poop. unless you Photoshop the To poop. make the poop look really <laughs> slick. Just that perfect <laughs> oh green God. and slimy. Not, not, and too, not too fluffy, but not too hard. Really regretting this question. Yeah. <laughs> but one would speculate that it does play upon one of our evolutionary psychology uh, mechanisms in that we both want to attract our the best possible mate even if we have a mate we still have that psychological mechanism mm. and we also don't want to get rejected by our tribe because mm-hmm. when you're rejected by the tribe that essentially means death because you don't have the resources that you pool together in a tribe and so the photoshopping preys upon our need to be accepted by the tribe, our, our instinctual need to be, be accepted. And one of the problems with industrialization and our moving into cities with millions of people is that we don't have the relationships with all the people around us to feel secure in their acceptance of us. We come into contact with thousands of people every day that don't even know us, and therefore they don't accept us yet. They could reject us. They could accept us. Back in the day, the Pleistocene, we would come into contact, they estimate, 150 people at the most. And they knew you from the day you were born. You saw them in the field. You fought against the fellow tribes. You fought off the the tigers together. You were best, best, best friends. And you died (laughs) at 17. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, And so... You didn't care how, I mean, you know, when you're around people that you love and that you know accept you, my guess is, is you, you can poop, poop, in their you face. poop in front of them. You don't, <laughs> you don't, you don't care if they see your butt. You don't care. <sighs> you don't care if you don't come across as smart, that kind of thing. Right. That's true. Yeah. So one of the things that I recommend people do is gather as much as they can people around them that they feel secure with. To, 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 therapy. to, to stay, stave off that insecure feeling that we get when we're exposed to so many people that, that are not accepting of us. <laughs> That's interesting because I, um, I moved to Seattle three years ago, you know, and it's like, it's always that pull of like, should you live near your family or should you live with like, like you said, your tribe, you know, where it's like, there's your tribe that you're related to. And then there's your tribe where it's like my kind of weirdos, you know, and you're just like, I love being in exactly my culture. It's interesting, even though I'm definitely a blend now and there's, you know, it's not, I'm definitely more outgoing than the average Seattleite. Where were you from? Florida. So I'm outgoing and from the South. Um, I grew up near Tampa. I lived in Gainesville and I was a reporter in St. Augustine for three years. Oh, St. Augustine. So that's the northern part, which is more like more like southern culture. Yeah. Whereas southern Florida is more like a different kind of culture. It right? wasn't exactly southern. It wasn't certainly wasn't Miami. It was just pretty like suburban oh, really? Florida, okay. you know, and um, but it, Florida is beautiful. Yeah. I mean, people are nice. And when you come from somewhere where most people will be like, oh, people are so friendly here. You're like, that's my point of reference. And then you move somewhere else and you're just like, God, what is wrong with people? <laughs> I've had, I mean, but I've learned to tone it down. You kind of start absorbing that culture. Nah, don't worry about it. There's plenty of weirdos in Seattle. I mean, look at me and Berta. What's your next question, Paul? Oh, good Lord. Um, let me get a non-gross one. Oh, what is the biological advantage of art? 
Right. So again, as with the graffiti, similar to that, the theory goes that it's a signaling behavior. In social psychology, they call it signaling as a way of trying to show your fitness as a mate. You're trying to show people that you have status in comparison to other people. You can do this while other people cannot. And you're trying to either get the prestige and power or you're trying to get a mate or you're trying to get acceptance and, and this sort of thing. I, but I, but I, I find that to be fairly thin. Yeah, that's given, not my given, experience with it. Given how personal art can be and how some people can make art without ever displaying it and how some people make art that actually is bothersome to other people. So I think... In summary, I'll say that I think art is actually what, one of the fallacies that often gets talked about in evolutionary psychology and, and particularly among reporters is that everything has an evolutionary basis. Mm-hmm. That's a fallacy, actually. Not everything we do would naturally have an evolutionary advantage. There, there can be lots of things that are just kind of random offshoots of, you know, like some people say language is not evolutionarily important that we didn't need language to survive on the Serengeti, but it was a happy accident that developed in relation to other developments that we needed to survive. I know we're talking about DNA-based evolution right now, right? Definitely. Right? Is that correct? We're talking about DNA-based evolution? Uh, DNA and RNA, which is very right, important. Right, right, right. But genetic, uh, yeah, like like genetic material-based and, evolution. And, ep- and epigenetic. Because Ooh, all, fair, fair enough, right. You guys are going out, out of my league. What, what, I'm, what I'm suggesting, and I don't want to deep dive right now or anything, but it's, it's data being combined, recombined, and passed down, which is at a higher level indistinguishable of culture being passed down and even uh, artificial creations being... Uh, generating their own culture and their own transcendence. And what I mean by that is uh, it's still just data being passed down in the universe. So if we could get very specific about, well, this thing is DNA-based and RNA-based. This isn't because it's taught by people with words. And the reason I'm bringing that up is because, okay, so art at a very, very early stage? So I'll just pause you and, yeah, okay. and point out that some people, intelligent people, write about evolutionary psychology in the way that you're talking okay. about, okay. where they don't limit evolutionary data yeah. to genetic Just code. Right. They also will include cultural code, so to speak. Right. But it, it gets really philosophically weird. That, that's fair. But here's why I was bringing it up. Without the ability for us to have the microcontrol of our hands to be able to make shapes that have different controlled lines and repeatable lines, right? Then we can't write, for example. Also, we can't pass down information other than through oral tradition, right? So there's a natural limit to how much you can pass down. So I feel like that's one of those things that actually, in a very fast-scale evolutionary sense, did give us a, an advantage over other species, which was that and, – and it gave cultures that had that an advantage over other cultures. Right, but many right? argue that – our evolutionary changes have not been very significant. In the DNA. In the DNA. That's why I was bringing up my first point. Okay. Yes. Since the yes. advent yes. of civilization. And, and I, well, I would agree with that. I think that whatever we gained uh, evolutionary to uh, control tools better as an accident allows us to draw – I don't think it enabled us to kill our preys any better. Well, maybe marking no, where they, the prey might be. But. No, they 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 would argue that our dexterity and our fingers were not for for tools, but also for maybe picking meat off sure bones sure, you know? but not for art. 
because you know a, a, a lion comes up and you know with yeah. their mouth they just right, right, right. you know whereas humans can come you up can and pick, like and pick berries and pick and, and, and pick out uh, yeah. the marrow from from the yeah. inside of the bone but, but not for art right so so the art would be a or a side effect a or side effect yeah, yeah. And, and so then my argument would come in to say the then the part that takes over is this other type of data evolution that then makes that an advantageous thing for a culture because now the culture can communicate beyond just the oral tradition. So that's that's my... Well, let me ask you, Paulette, would you be more attracted to a guy who was a successful artist as opposed to someone who was not? Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's... I think men who are talented in different ways are always attractive, you know, um, and people who, I don't know, there's so many things that are attractive about a man that, that I think that that's one thing, you know, someone who gives back and cares about the community can be attractive in one way. And someone who's, you know, talented in art can be attracted another way, attractive in another way. Um, and I definitely think that's one of the, something that is valuable about a person and definitely, um, you know, we've all seen that kind of thing happen where you're like, Oh, that guy plays guitar. Oh, he has a really hot girlfriend. That's interesting. It's like, there's these levels of value that are different in men and women. And, you know, men have, uh, you know, physical attractiveness is obviously valued in both sexes, but you know, it's been shown that guys I've read guys, you know, who are not physically attractive, have more money. And, you know, it's just, it's like, those things you don't want to think about. You're like, oh, people aren't that way. And then you're like, oh, God, they kind of are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, it's the Billy Joel effect, shall we say? You know? What? <laughs> What's wrong with Billy? Christy <laughs> uh, Brinkley? Come on. Uh, so, yeah, the argument in evolutionary psychology, and this is a, you know, this is a strong argument they make. And I, I would still make a massive caveat that it, that there's a lot of culture involved, but they make the argument that women evolved to be attracted to not only physical attractiveness because that's a marker of genetic uh, viability, meaning uh-huh. that the more similar one side of your face is to the other, the more symmetrical your body is, the more likely your genetic code is actually not going to produce a malformation wow, in, in the child. that's weird. Yeah, um, they've done studies where they just, they take a picture of someone and then they just mirror reflect it and they show the two pictures and people prefer the mirror reflection because one side of the face is the same as the other. Yeah. And so anyway. Um, so, so we should walk around with mirrors like this <laughs> and be like, wow, that's hot. <laughs> and do lots of art. Um, and the other thing that they'll say is that women evolved not only that, but they also evolved the psychological mechanism that drives them toward men that can gather resources. Mm. And culture kind of defines that, right? In the old days, it would have been like caribou and yeah and he kills a lot yeah he yeah. he's he's very good at you right. know killing or, or gathering berries or whatever he did and to, in today's world score it's touchdowns it's score <laughs> touchdowns it, yeah. or or what about art. this my my boyfriend is hilarious and that was one of the things that i just i love a hilarious guy and he's right. so funny and it's like but you're just i mean that is a kind of art but it's just like, what is it about being funny? What is it about being funny that has value? And actually, I have other questions, questions about being yeah. funny. Right. You know, like, what is what is that? Right. <laughs> so, again, just sticking with this this signaling hypothesis, the hypothesis would be, and it's a lot of speculation because it's impossible to study this, and I'll get into that in a second. But the idea is, is that women are attracted to men because in order to be humorous, you actually have to be fairly intelligent. The more intelligent you are in general and the more empathy you have, incidentally, the more ability you have at being able to read people, at picking Mm -hmm. up what's funny. 
And so humor is a function of empathy and intelligence to some extent. And so that signals your resource ability, your ability to gather resource intelligence and empathy and, and your ability to care for your children when, when well, your children. What have. about the, like, I laugh, it releases some dopamine. So I like that. Oh. Right. So that's another thing is. I'm addicted. Right. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, you know, definitely laughing is a preferable state to not laughing. This right? guy makes yeah. me cry. I love him. Right. And so. Uh, they would say that men evolved a psychological mechanism to attempt to be funny <laughs> and to gather sex, you know, from women. I don't know why I said gather sex. <laughs> gather sex <laughs> in my basket. <laughs> oh, just picking my sex. Yeah, look in at the all fields. my look at my wow. nine sexes. I got. <laughs> I got nine pounds of sex right here in this <laughs> basket. <laughs> I don't know. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, it's um, it's so crazy because I feel like so I started. Um, being super interested in evolutionary psychology when I read The Moral Animal. That book, have you read that? So that book kind of like messed me up for a month. People would be like, why are people like this? And I'd be like, I know why. It's because women only have a few eggs and men have millions of sperm. And I was like obsessed. I could not drop it. And um, But then, so I love evolutionary psychology, but then a lot of it I feel like kind of lacks, I guess the heart and like, Almost like I don't use this term really, but it just kind of applies like the soul of a human being. It's like are there is something that's more, you know, godlike or there's something else and that I sometimes feel like, well, there's got to be more because I think we all experience that as a human being. You're like you want to believe that you don't that you didn't fall in love with the person you're in love with because he can gather resources for you and you can copy data through time. You know, it's like it can be really depressing. Yeah. Right. Well, you bring up God or spirituality or a higher meaning, and certainly that is something that everyone has to struggle with or think about. And that has nothing to do with evolution, or it might have something to do with evolutionary <laughs> psychology, but but in terms of your belief system, it it um, is to some extent separate. But in terms of the depressing, so to speak, knowledge that your behavior is so much based on your instincts— is one that I like to comment on, which is to say that a lot of scientists and in the media today in particular, they love shocking statements. You know, the, there's a lot of um, people that, a lot of scientists that love to spin their data to make statements like everything you do is basically predetermined and you have no free will. They'll, they actually will say stuff like that. Wow. There was a study that came out that. They put probes on people's brains, and then they ran them through a number of decision-making kind of processes, and they found that there, to every decision they made, there was a precursor that they weren't aware of in their brain. And then – so the idea – the argument they make is your brain unconsciously makes your decision for you, and then later on, you make a justification as to why you made that decision. Oh, I hate that. Right. But, <laughs> but all that is ridiculous because I am now going to pick up this iPhone. I am now going to pick up this mouse. I am now going to say the word uh, barf shit or shit barf. <laughs> you know, like, like uh, you can't tell me that I didn't just make a volitional choice to do that. Well, but, but, but even that's – it's, I don't know why they would go down that route because uh, just because your language center does not uh, externalize a sentence about what you wanted to do and did doesn't mean that your your logical and motor centers and things don't fire way before that happens. Right. Just because there's a precursor in the brain doesn't yeah doesn't mean I mean it could just be like a revving up of a decision. Yes. Right. Yeah. So but but they love to do that because there's a lot of people not only that love to shock people but they also 
there's a lot of people that actually, for whatever reason, get off on the idea that we have no free will. So you'll find some people will love that argument. And I've had arguments with people like this. They'll be like, you realize we have no free will. You realize. And to some extent, it's a, it's a, it's sort of a, a ridiculous argument because we absolutely have no free will among some things. We have no free will about when we're born. I have no free will about being born a male. I have no free will about having the need for sleep. I have no free will about the mood I'm in to some extent. But I absolutely have free will about my career and about, you know, and they'll point to twin studies. You know, they'll say, well, twins, you know, they have the exact same career. But there's just as many twins that have separate careers. And so to me, it's a, it's a nuanced conversation. I think we absolutely have free will. And so, and, and the latest, the latest state of, if you draw it all the way down to quantum physics, the latest state of that field says that things cannot be uh, perfectly quantifiable. Period. Like it is, it is physically impossible to recreate the same situation twice given the same set of variables because uh, there is always going to be random variance. Right. So even to that point, which yeah. was the more the the pre-Einsteinian Platonic way to think that you could, given the same settings recreate something exactly. Right. That seems to be, according to current quantum physics understanding, impossible. Well, my argument against that discussion is that when you are on the micro level, probability rules, right? But when you're on the macro level, the probability loses its, I can't, I think they call it cohesion or something. Yeah, yeah. But, but, but now when you multiply it by, by, by gazillions. Sure, certainly. Yeah, I so agree. So given the same initial setting of the universe, you don't end up with Kirk on this podcast talking ab- right now. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So does that is that I don't know, is that comforting at all that that what I'm t- cuz I I actually want you to feel comforted by the idea that we actually do have free will. Um I feel that it's crazy how little we actually know and I feel like you have to Kind of get educated to a point where you're just like, oh, so we don't know anything. Is that what you're telling me, basically? Absolutely. The The brain is the last frontier in a lot of ways. I believe we'll figure out so much about as- astronomy and astrophysics way before we understand the brain. The brain is it's crazy. enormously complex. Yeah. It's so nuts. We just saw Lucy the other night. It was not good, but it was really trippy. Right. Well, that movie makes no scientific sense, <laughs> by the way. One of the reviews said, um, terrible, a terrible movie, no matter what percentage of your brain you're using while watching it. <laughs> right. That's so great. that, I mean, I haven't seen the movie, but I've heard about it. And it basically, in 50 years, we'll uh, hopefully get rid of that myth and that movie will make no sense because because t- in today's world, a lot of people believe that. We only use 3% of or 10% of our brain, but that's not true. We use all of our brain. That plus, it makes no sense. I mean, why would we have 90%? I mean, our brain takes up like an enormous amount of energy goes into keeping our brain running because it's always running. It's like a, it's like a muscle, essentially, that's yeah. constantly doing it's something. It's crazy. And so why would we dedicate so much you know, yep. resource to something that has 10% of it being used. What about dreams? Good. I'm really, I'm, I've always been a huge dreamer and it's been, it's really emotionally draining a lot of times. I have like really emotional dreams and just crazy dreams and I'm like, Dreams are so weird. I mean, yeah. that your brain, <laughs> yeah. I can, as a writer, sit down to try to write and be like, I can't think of anything. But my brain, while I'm sleeping, thinks of these insane anxiety-inducing stories or like fantastical like things. What? Like what? Oh, my God. I have had a dream that I was flying once, but I've had a dream that I was like stuck in the air like and couldn't 
like move. I was trying to move all my body parts, but it wasn't getting me anywhere. I always have dreams that I get lost in crowds. Oh, this is really, am I going to have to pay you at the end of this? <laughs> <laughs> hey, you're falling into one of the classic blunders is to tell a therapist oh, your dreams. Uh-oh. But um, I love talking about dreams and I talk with my students and myself and my clients about dreams. There are, are a lot of different functions of dreams in my belief system. The one of them is is that it helps our creativity. It it it's one way for our brain to try on new solutions to things. So sometimes we'll dream about something that we're worried about, and so our brain starts brainstorming <laughs> about different solutions. Like I hate my boss. Let's try shooting him in the face with a gun. <laughs> you know, does is that good? And and oh, that wasn't so great. You know, right. what about this? And so so it that's one thing. And there's some evidence that dreaming increases uh, creativity. You brought up a study years ago, actually, that demonstrated that. Another function of, of dreaming is long-term memory. So it's one way, and there's some some evidence for that, it, you know, because you can actually experiment on people by not letting them dream. Mm-hmm. You you uh, put them in a, you know, a sleep kind of monitoring situation. And as soon as they go to rapid eye movement, you wake them up. <laughs> and so you prevent them from dreaming and then you let a, a, another group of people dream and then you study how well they retained their memories of the previous day and they find that people that dream are have have better memory so it might be a a kind they call it kind of like a file saving system it's like a defragmenting of the of the hard drive so there's that it's also i believe a way for us to express certain unmet needs so if you are feeling lonely then you might have dreams where everyone is there hugging you and loving you. If you haven't had sex in a while, you might have a dream about sex. Or if you're lusting after someone, you might have a dream about having sex with them. So those are just three main reasons why I see people dream. Does that does that jive with some of your dreams? Um, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I don't know. You just you you try to think about why it is, but I I think. Um, if I do kind of write it out, I can see kind of a theme that wasn't really originally there about a decision or something like that. Um, but mostly they're just, I mean, crazy things. And just the vividness is what's amazing to me. The, the power of your brain to do things that when you're like, when you actually want to direct it toward doing something like that, it's just like, nope, no thanks. Yeah. I don't want to write <laughs> that article for you. But uh, yeah, I'll just make a crazy, you know, play in the night in your brain and make you believe all this stuff. It's just, it's really interesting. And I try to, I think about that when I'm having trouble writing. I'm like, my brain has the power to create all these crazy stories. And also with like, when you're having anxiety, your brain can spin off in these crazy Mm -hmm. directions. You're just like, no, that's not allowed. And, you know, kind of getting control of that and using it towards something good. I never thought about that. I I, I seem to... Sorry, a a a fourth function of dreaming... I, I think has no function, which is that our brains need to be doing something in all likelihood. And there's there's re, a rejuvenating effect of dreaming. If you don't dream, your sleep is not very rejuvenating. And so it might just be a byproduct of a brain function that needs to occur. And so it, it might need to do something. And there's uh, the byproduct of that is that it creates images. And we actually don't remember most of our dreams. So we, we mainly remember dreams that we wake up during. I seem to remember also some, reading something about when they put electrodes to people's heads and they monitor while they're dreaming and sleeping and they check which parts of their brains are showing more activity, that uh, the motor cortex actually shows activity, even though in most cases they don't really move. Um, but 
but that uh, I, I feel like there I don't remember all the details, but there was something about motor rehearsal happening, and especially in kids as they're or anytime you're learning anything, but they, they've done it with kids in that stage where they're learning how to uh, how to walk or how to I forget the exact age. Um, so it kind of makes sense because your brain's learning new things, and so it's like replaying, replaying, replaying to try to to try to improve. And, and during sleep, it would be a good time to do it because you're not doing other things. Berto is smiling as he's saying that because I have a condition called REM behavior disorder or REM sleep behavior disorder. Which he listens to REM every night. Which, which, <laughs> which is a, a – I have a very mild case of it. Maybe once a year during a dream, I will actually act it out. So our brain will actually make us paralyzed while we're dreaming. That's a, like if you wake up in the middle of a dream, some people, they call them night terrors, they'll be completely yeah. paralyzed. Well, that's because the brain actually will sever the the electrical communication between your motor cortex and the rest of your body. I've seen that. It's crazy. What do you mean you've seen it? Uh, I've seen it when my siblings had it. What what they do? Um, I just remember him crying and um, my mom would say that he would say things like, thousands of children are dying. And it was just right. like, she was like, oh, it was just night terrible. Just night terrors. Oh. Just horrible. And I don't remember it very clearly, but right. I was very young. But um, just that it felt terrible and it was very physical right so there's a usually there's a very clear line between dreaming and being asleep and awake and conscious but for some people like myself there's a there's a blurry line at times and it usually results from sleep deprivation uh, from the previous night and so it has to do with serotonin and this sort of thing but one of the things that i do is i flail (laughs) if, if if i'm having a dream where someone is coming at me and i have to punch them in the face I will actually punch something next to me. Uh, I punched my own hand, actually, <laughs> and, uh, three months ago, and it still really hurts, and I can't play the guitar anymore. <laughs> oh, my God. Because <laughs> uh, you can't bend that finger very well. How did well. you, just like this? I was on my stomach, and I lifted myself up like a push-up, and I reached my right hand back and I punched my own hand as hard as I could because you were punching this dude in the face yeah <laughs> yeah the guy was being he was actually coming at me in my oh, dream man. and I was so it was self defense it was self defense clearly <laughs> oh, God. I was really gonna c- connect yeah and then I oh, found that I was punching my own did hand did you say come at me bro in your dream last <laughs> <laughs> thing I remember just, I said come at me bro I'd be disappointed in myself if I would be like oh disgusted my dream self does that ever happen do you ever wake up from dream and go oh man what a douchebag <laughs> Son, I am disappointed. So, like, I actually wish you could have my kind of fights so that they wouldn't happen to you. Because my fights are always the slow mo through jello kind, where I'm like that. trying oh. to punch, but it doesn't move. And it's, it's, you wouldn't have. Why is that a thing that everyone head. has? Or like flying, you were saying you were struggling. To well, yeah. I have a theory about that in that movement involves a lot of feedback a lot of feedback from our body mm. so when we move our arm in real life we actually feel our arm moving in space right <laughs> right, right and right. so when we're dreaming we don't get that feedback right we, we're trying to move but we, we're getting no feedback about our arms moving and so I think what our brain does is it's just pure speculation it, it says you must be moving really slowly oh, wow <laughs> I, don't, I don't feel any saying. momentum in your arms right, you know I, right. I'm, I don't feel I can anything. see that yeah 
crazy. I had a dream that I was like stealing from the mall as some joke, and I had like a gun, and I was like, I'm gonna point this gun and steal something that's like ten cents just for one, like to to do it once. And then I like realized what I had done when the mall <laughs> security was on me. Like, did I have a gun? What? That was weird. <laughs> so strange. I was just because I've feel, never done it. Did you feel <laughs> guilty when you woke up? Um. Yeah. Yeah, I felt like, oh my god, I ruined my life. Oh. <laughs> All I've built. All right, what's another question? Oh my god. Um, so this is kind of a darker one. Um, why did humans evolve this part of them that enjoys watching others suffer? Right, so this is a group comparison, social psychology, schadenfreude idea that... Well, it wasn't just Freud. Other people proposed it. <laughs> it's a common thing among people in various cultures that we don't always love it when people next to us or people, when other humans experience bad things. We don't always are like that. We <laughs> that was hard for you to say. It was hard <laughs> for you. Um, I, I speak that. good But there's been talking. this history of like, you know, people in Salem gathering to watch, watch the witch be burned gladiators and people all so, kinds of like public yeah. executions that people is entertainment there's a part of yeah. suffering right tosh point oh. right so <laughs> the idea is and to me it's it's hard to lock down because human behavior is very weird and we're very weird animals but the idea is is that when we see another group or person experiencing something bad we by comparison feel better about ourselves our self-esteem goes up our sense of security goes up it it feels good it's like well it's not me it's happening oh, to them oh god that's true yeah Yikes. so when our friends have something good happen to them then we by comparison think something bad is happening to us oh man why is that that's terrible it is terrible <laughs> and that's why we have our frontal cortex which allows us to check our emotional reactions and have a moral response which is good for you good for you friend so I wonder if there's just probably not been enough evolutionary DNA time, but I wonder if our if our frontal cortex has had a chance to evolve a bit in the last 2,000 years. And the reason I wonder that, but maybe actually as I say that, I bet well, you the answer is no. <laughs> well, I don't know, but I'll just say there is evidence that we have evolved in the last 2,000 years. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. How, how is evolution measured? Like what is yeah. one notch of evolution? It's hard. Well... When a mutation, mutation, and again, I'm not an evolutionary biologist, but from my understanding, there's always mutation among a population of, of among. You've seen X Men. Think of Waterworld, and then when they're like mutation, <laughs> see his gills. Every his time skills. I hear that word, I have to say that in that voice. I, I can't apologize. Even, I love Waterworld, by the way. <laughs> oh God! Uh, everyone hates that movie. I, I'm actually, I actually well, enjoy. It. I love Waterworld. One I of the funniest it. movies I've ever That's seen. What, it's so meant to be funny. It's meant happen. to be funny. I mean, it has. I don't think it was. It's it's totally meant to be funny. No, at I, the end. no it's got Kevin I, Costner in no, no, no. it. No, no, no. At the beginning, it's meant to be serious. No, but by the right. end, it's totally kitsch because uh, what's his name? The De- evil Dennis guy. Hopper. De- Dennis Hopper. He does. He's not a credible, no, no, realistic no. villain. You're right. That's because it's a bad movie. People spend two hundred. <laughs> people spend two hundred million dollars on comedies all the time. If I'm hungover, <laughs> it's two p.m. and that movie's on. And I'll admit, I'll let it run to the end. Just for that creepy kiss, the mutation part. <laughs> And the end when they find yeah. land, and it's so pretty. That is hilarious <laughs> that you've seen that movie more than once. Uh, That's none of your business. <laughs> <laughs> but um, when a mutation among a, a, a population becomes 
proliferated through the population, that's when we've evolved. Evo- evolution has happened. Uh, is is one definition? So there's of examples of some mutations that they've tracked that kind of thing, right? So so for example, some bears, black bears, brown bears evolve one of them would be albino and Mm -hmm. as that albinoism spread throughout a population we have polar bears so evolution so (laughs) so there's always there's always some albino bears that are born but there's no evolutionary in fact it's a disadvantage when you're in the woods because you stick out like a like a white thumb right um (laughs) white uh so so that's one i think if i remember right definition you should save that sound bit as uh just a little button and every time you learn something play it oh Oh. learn something (laughs) (laughs) how many things did Berto learn today (laughs) oh i have to ask this question for sure what is the one thing real or maybe imagined but there's so many cool things that other animals have gotten to evolve what are the what's the one thing that you're mad humans did not evolve Mm. such as bioluminescence horns or the color spectrum that shrimp can see which is like crazy it's like no humans you can't see all the colors right nuts i'm pissed off we didn't evolve the ability to be invisible in in girls locker rooms yeah right yeah am i right yeah um (laughs) No, no, no. In all seriousness, I'm pissed off we didn't evolve better methods of self-control. Mm. Mm, that's true. I always think about like, I'm like, can we all just get on the self-driving car immediately? Because humans obviously lack the will to not drink mm-hmm. or shoot heroin before going behind the wheel mm. of a car. Like right. we've proved that over and over. Can we all just as a like society be like, um, uh, we suck too bad to drive. Just let's, can we yep. invent self-driving cars? <laughs> right. That's related to what I would say in general, higher intelligence. <laughs> the, the ability to see the the trees through the woods or the woods oh, through the trees. Okay, actually, that that maybe f- finish your thought because I, because yeah. there's so many examples of this about when you know individually we're all pretty intelligent. We can you know we can walk to the store and buy something and bring it home and you know we we manage our lives pretty well. But when you aggregate us as a society, we're idiots. We don't do anything right, or yep. we do very li- we do a lot yeah. of wrongs. Yeah. For instance, we should be. Totally jumping on the bandwagon of the Google car. But as soon as that thing is up and running, you'll see so much resistance because people can't – well, the gay gay rights, for instance, this is a classic example. It is irrefutably logical to allow two consenting men and two consenting women to marry and be in a relationship. It is illogical to think otherwise. And for anyone (laughs) – to, and, and you see, like, our society slowly developing. I mean, when I was young, I was, you know, it was in the 90s or 80s. All it took was a little bit of thinking and a little bit of meeting some gay people to instantly say, oh, of course. It, it makes It's totally logical. Right. Now, I'm basically saying I'm a genius compared to everyone else. But, <laughs> but when I look at the, the, the our society just slowly creeping, we're only like, what's it now? Like only 51% of Americans now are approving of gay rights right. or 55%. Right. Like it should have been 100% in the 60s, honestly. And that's an example of low intelligence when you aggregate us all together. I, I, I'm going to follow up on that and maybe modify my point a little bit. Because it is true that like it's impulse control that gets us in trouble. But I think there's this bigger picture thing, which is kind of what you're getting at, which is uh, humans are, are notoriously bad at long-term strategic planning. So even in wars, even famous generals, even everything, right? So we are really good tacticians. We know how to plan to grab that beast. 
and you're going to go to the left, I'm going to come here, and we can trick and deceive and all these things. But you try to put a six-month plan together, and this is why it's so hard at work in professional jobs, why things go awry, why projects run over, because humans, and, and then you talk about 10-year planning? Forget about it. Right. I'm, in, I'm impressed, actually, that we have big things like highways and the right. dam, the Hoover Dam and stuff that yeah. did take long-term right. multi-year planning, the pyramids. Yeah. <laughs> but, but think about yeah. what we could do if I was dictator of the world and, you know, no, <laughs> but, but the, the war is a perfect example. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, World War One was a hundred years ago, and I'm watching and listening to podcasts about World War One because I'm fascinated with it. But all of the generals thought it was going to be over right away, mm-hmm. and then after four years, something like I don't know, eighty million people died. Crazy. And and the borders didn't really change that much. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, like yeah. Germany shrunk, Austria Hungary got broke up, like. It didn't really do anything other than kill a lot, a, lot of of, a lot of people. And that's completely illogical. It makes no sense. It's like we've evolved so far, but just missed it. Not right. far enough. Like, we're just powerful enough to destroy ourselves. Right. And will we make it that extra hump? It just does not seem like it, which is terrible. Yeah. But that's like how you start to feel. You're like, well, you know, if everyone doesn't get cancer, we're probably going to be blown up <laughs> by nuclear bombs by North Korea or all the ice could melt and we'll just drown. But it's like you're constantly bombarded with ways the world are ending. And it's just like, why don't millennials want to buy houses and yeah. cars? And it's like... Yeah. Why do you think? Yeah. Like, this the whole thing's going up in flames, dude. Right. I mean, the classic example I think of is liberals in Seattle, like myself, love to think about ourselves as really smart, okay? We're, oh, we're, we're smart. Global warming, da-da-da-da-da. Right. How many of these liberals drive cars? All of us. All of them. Almost 99% of them do. Yeah. That is a direct, illogical, stupid decision. Now you're making a face. I'll make that face too. I, I need my car. I need. I, I don't need it. I just. I don't want to ride a bike. I love it, and I'm a spoiled. It's singles, spoiled brat. right? But, so, but people love their cars. So <laughs> you know, yeah. even among the people that quote unquote believe in global warming and are you know conscious of the reality that we are killing species by the day and we're threatening our own survival by this, particularly people in the lowlands and in other countries, they'll, they'll be their whole countries will be gone. If, if the ice caps melt and yet we still drive our cars but we recycle because that makes us feel better even though that does nothing toward this toward this well world. the science is not in you know there, yeah. there's I'm not a scientist there's, uh, there was a report from exxon Mobil just the other day <laughs> right saying that <laughs> yeah so you know even though we're smart enough to know something we do nothing about it and so an alien race watching us would say you people are stupid that's the definition of dumb you know something and yet you do nothing to stop it and it's that's that's the long-term thing is is evaded us right and and there's a lot of sci-fi writers that have written around these topics about how there's the possibility uh whether or not there are other alien species in the universe right you can debate that all the day long but assuming that there are there's the possibility at any given point after a certain level of advancement that you will self-destroy and because in the in the lower species it's only natural disasters generally that can get get to you uh, because you don't have a weapon like nukes or or genetic or how do you call it mass uh, viruses or bacteria that you can create that can wipe you out but at a certain point a species can evolve to where it can self-destroy and so they you know we wonder are we one of those or are we gonna overcome all those odds and it is kind of what do you think I, I'm hopeful I'm hopeful but I don't think it's so much us it will be our our digital uh, uh, overlords no, not overlords. The, the <laughs> digital children we create will go on. 
What are you talking about? Are you talking about DNA? <laughs> no, no a- AI computers. That makes you hopeful. Yeah. Oh my God! That it's that's the Terminator. That is literally the plot no, of the Terminator. No, 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 no. no, no listen, listen, <laughs> listen. An amoeba would have said that about us, but that, that's oh not the way to look God. at it. You think that's the next level of evolution? It's got to be because look, oh my think about God. it. How well can Mind you survive? Blown. How well can you survive in space? You can't. You're subject to radiation. No, no. You have an atmosphere protecting you. You can only operate within certain levels of atmospheric pressure. You can't operate within certain levels of heat. You can't, you know, you need moisture. You need these chemicals. You need these things. You're very vulnerable to to the universe. No, we need a brat for to counterbalance okay. him. <laughs> so by all means, be a brat. Oh, man. That's really weird. That's really weird. I'm going to have to think about that. I'm going right. to have to have a weird dream about that. All right. So let's do one more. One more question, and then okay. we'll wrap it up. All right. So what's another question you got for us, Um, What makes a culture adopt another culture's words or habits as much as the world has incorporated English words? I know that specifically has a lot to do with technology, but um, also just when you're around someone, I find... I find myself like doing their hand movements after a while or I'll catch myself saying something that they say where you just something just transfers it to you. And it's funny when you come back from Peace Corps, you're not 100 percent American anymore. You have absorbed this other culture and it's kind of become a part of you. And what like when you can physically feel something that is to you rude and then you've lived in a culture where it's not rude and you come back to America, you it's hard to get like for me sometimes Paraguayans talk about money in a way that is super frank and I really liked it and I'll kind of talk about money in a way that's definitely more frank now and I I can't remember I'm like is this rude Mm. so what transfers a culture to another person Mm. I mean sadly a England invaded most of the world other than Latin America really I mean and Latin America speaks Spanish and has mostly Spain traditions because Spain invaded all of Latin America and uh and then the U.S has culturally invaded, which is maybe not as bad, although some people would argue it is because McDonald's and literally, and, literally invaded and literally yeah, invaded. And literally but invaded. but to be fair, the U.S. hasn't had an empire like the Eng- the British Empire. Some people would argue yeah. against that. Well, yeah, fine, fine. But, but but we have Guam at its height. Hawaii. At its height, England owned all of Africa yeah. and all of it was more India over. and all of yeah whatever. More over. But but still, no matter what, it is uh, definitely true that the U.S. has come sometimes in peace, sometimes at war, and. And our MTV and our and, – and mostly because we're so wealthy, we've been able to display really cool things. Hollywood. That a lot of people are like, that's cool, right? Because you're in a country that doesn't have that money. And they're like, look at those movies. Look at those cool videos with those people with crazy hair and stuff. And it just starts permeating because it looks so different and cool. And you can't do it. And you don't know anyone around you that can do it. Growing up in Colombia, we had – I think growing up, I don't think I saw a single Colombian movie. We had a couple of Colombian yeah, ra- uh, radio stations and TV stations, but we all looked up to the U.S. movies. Like, that was the thing. Yeah. Can so, I just say, in Bogota, I saw people eating fried chicken with clear with plastic. Clear pl- pl- yeah, twice. This must be a new thing, man. Okay, sorry. I was no, no, like, this no, must no be, I saw it. No, you, you might be right. This must be a new thing. Like, growing up, there was no such sanitation. Yeah, that's probably not in this country. <laughs> to, to protect your hands. From- I don't know. We were just like, that's, we're like, that's a really good idea. Because I want that for so cheap. I know. <laughs> hey, then you get that good, you know. No, that might be a new. That end. might be a new thing. <laughs> but um, about the movie thing, I had a really funny experience with that when I was feeling especially just like staying in my house and not going outside in Paraguay and not being the weirdo anymore. I was like, no, I should go outside. And I talked to this kid who was learning English by watching some like you know just. Rambo and movies like that and I was like oh that's really good and we had a little conversation in English I was like good job and he was going to play volleyball and he's like oh it's my turn to serve so he gets the ball t- 
turns to me when he's about to serve and goes, stop this motherfucker, and ah! serves the volleyball. And I was like, that's the most amazing thing I've ever seen, because he was just learning English. He's like, before you do something cool, oh he's got the one-liner down. <laughs> it was amazing. I was like, that. I'm glad I left the house today. That and when you really said goodbye, good. when you said goodbye, did he go, hasta la vista, baby? <laughs> and then you're like, I'll oh, be man. back. <laughs> it was so funny. Oh, yeah, well, it, you know, obviously culture spreads things around. And your question that you emailed to us is why, do, why are so many English words around the globe. And when you look at, and I'm not a linguist or a historian, but the little I do know is that English is actually appropriated from other countries, other areas of the world, like Germany and France and uh, other areas. And so, um, so languages have a long history of moving around and influencing each other and that sort of thing. But yeah, in terms of influence, our culture is, particularly 50 years ago, you just dominated the world. You know, I mean, our Hollywood and our economy and our military and all these things. And so if you were going to get some power in your country, to some extent, you had to communicate with Americans some of the time. And so that that encouraged that. But something's happening more recently, which is with, with the internet and stuff. We need to decide on one language. I mean, eventually, if, if we're going to function as a, as a world, we have to be able to understand each other. We can't yeah. be speaking other languages. It's right? really becoming English. And it's like, it's right. sad to say that as an English speaker, who's like, everyone speak my language. Right. But it's like. Es muy difícil porque está uno trabajando lo que sea y llega un lenguaje que no se entiende y no es justo. Yeah. No hey, hey uh, this is America. We speak American. Pero la uh, mayoría de las personas en el mundo que tienen plata habla inglés y por eso los otros sí. aprenden Tienes razón. Ellos. Tienes razón. Para ganar. Es muy triste, pero es la verdad. Sí. Some might argue muy bueno el español. Yeah, that <laughs> Chinese might be the eventual language because of True. their emerging. So English it's too might, hard. English, too hard. Well, English might not be the one, but it might. But the point is, is yeah, where it, it's it's convenient for us. And a lot of industries, actually, I don't have one off the top of my head. Maybe you do, Berto. They've decided that English is the language that yeah. they're going to speak. Really? And, and well, if if the world becomes a meritocracy, we're going down real bad. <laughs> well, <laughs> we are developing. <laughs> we are not trying as hard as the others. Chinese has too much of a barrier to entry to oh. be adopted in too much oh. in too many latin based no, i don't mean latino based i mean latin as in the language latin based uh languages but uh, here's the other thing uh sadly throughout history it was always through the sword the, the answer to your question oh, yeah. because why did latin permeate the world well because of rome why did greece per- before that because of greece why you know and and before that there were sumerian and there was babylonian and every time someone won and devastated an area everyone starts speaking that language oh, yeah. these days luckily i guess in the last 50 years it's been a lot more about like kirk was saying about cultural influence without without necessarily the sword although there's definitely been sword involved yeah. but i wouldn't say that most people speak english in the last 50 years because of death caused by English countries, but rather because of the influence of the British culture and the American. And if we're going to hypothesize evolutionary psychology-wise, we would say that when you go to another country, because of a psychological mechanism that compels you to be accepted by the social group, you start gravitating toward the mean. You start gravitating toward what everyone is doing. You start dressing like them. You start talking like them. You adopt their their accents. You adopt their, their values about money and this sort of thing. And so it, to be accepted and to not be rejected by the group, we have a natural tendency to 
alter ourselves, our identities to fit in. Mm -hmm. Ah, but this is where my previous point comes in. Because mm -hmm. in Colombia, we're sitting there and everyone looks kind of the same, right? We're all in our classroom. We're wearing our red uh, sweater with a white shirt with a collar and our jeans. In comes the kid who just moved down from the US. And yeah, he's wearing that stuff. But look at the shoes. He's got the pumps. What are those things in those shoes? It's different. It's unique. And he doesn't want us to talk about sex too soon. <laughs> uh, well, but imagine that he had those pumps. Yeah. And the pump shoe maker had no advertising and only nerds wore those pumps. But we don't know it. <laughs> but, 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 but eventually, you know, eventually, or, or the kid was not a cool kid. Or that's something. right. That's right. So yeah. it all depends. It's all, you know, it's not just like <laughs> uniqueness. Dry. I mean, there are people in my neighborhood, homeless people that dress in very unique ways and no one wants to dress like oh, yeah, that. No. I'm sure I tried to start many trends that didn't stick. <laughs> <laughs> Although as I say that, I bet you anything, there's a hipster movement as we speak dressing like homeless people. Probably. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. oh, it's the new home, home, what, Remember homester. from Zoolander? What was it? Uh, Derelict. <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> the Derelict campaign. <laughs> All right. Well, those are fascinating questions, Paulette. Thanks for coming on the podcast. I love Love talking about this. What do you? What did you love talking? about? I've evolved book? to love this. Yeah, <laughs> uh, your questions are fascinating, and you know, me and Berto love to ramble, as you have realized. So, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you guys. I definitely got a few story ideas, and I'm really excited. Really, share what? what do oh you my gosh. Well, I've kind of learned not to share them because when they're not fully formed, it just sounds bad. Um, I did think it would be really cool to do a story on the psychology of graffiti, maybe for, for a graffiti mm. publication. That would be awesome. Mm. Um, so that involved like interviewing some graffiti artists and talking with psychologists. Yeah, that, that could be really cool. And watching them poop. And watching them poop for <laughs> sure. Um, and also like the history of graffiti. I really thought mm. that was cool to talk about. Oh, yeah. Um, and I want to look up more about signaling and, um, uh, the psychology of the idea of a tribe of finding your tribe mm. and what that means. I think that people community has become this really terrible, like, it's like the bottled water of activity. You're just like, oh, really? Like, you have to have, like, it's like a luxury that people think that, I don't know, just mm. liberal people want. I don't know. It's hard to explain. Like, it's kind of lost its meaning. But to me, um, we're in a solo mo mode right now. Are you saying that it's sort of seen as pedestrian to want a community? Like, cool people will say, oh, that's what soccer moms want is. No, I not really. I think it sounds. Um, like really flighty, like not that important. Uh, like I, I don't know. I have a hard time describing it because it's to, used in so many contexts. Do you mean like like oh, this is important for the community? That kind of thing is not. No, I right think now, what or? you're saying is it's like a crystal thing, right? Like it's like oh, it's just what it's what people talk about in a pretentious way. Mm -hmm. Like everyone needs a community. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and it's I don't know, but to me, it's like really. Um, Really finding the people who value what you value and really selecting who you bring into your life and who you're around and, and you say like, wow, I, I really think you're awesome and I'm going to put, I'm going to put effort into bringing you into my life and making you part of my life because you make my life more beautiful and I like, I like the view of life that you give me. Like some people, you can't quite capture, you can never see life the exact way they are, but you kind of just enjoy their view. The things that they point out are, just make you think about life a little bit differently and you kind of can create your own reality by the people you surround yourself with and you know i have this story about when i was at a party in florida and certainly not everyone is racist in florida but there is 
it's the South and there's definitely high levels of racism. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. had an assassination attempt in beautiful St. Augustine, Florida in the 60s. He came down there for a whole summer because the racism, you know, was such a problem. And it's a beautiful place and there's a lot of great people. But, you know, there's definitely still remnants of that in some areas. And so I was at a party there and this guy was saying the N-word and it's making me really uncomfortable. And I was telling the story to some friends who had grown up in Seattle and they were like, I've never heard anyone say the N-word here. And I'm like, oh, really? And just like not having to be the one who's like, don't be racist, just living in a place where it's cool, where people are accepting of people of different cultures and where, you know, two guys can walk down the street holding hands and just being like, this is where I choose to live, a place where people believe the things that I believe. Um, You know, and my family and friends in Florida, I definitely share beliefs with, but, you know, I don't know. There's just Mm -hmm. so much in Seattle that is like my liberal hippie view of life. And it's like, I just want to bask in my own people and my own like way of living, you know? So I don't know. You can definitely surround yourself too much with your tribe. I like to have people who think opposite of me in my life too, for sure. Well, one thing that might be interesting, if you're going to write about the community aspect, mm-hmm. um, I'm sure you've seen many of these, but you know, there's all these great documentaries about uh, micro communities that developed into something like uh, Lords of Dogtown uh, mm-hmm. or Z- Z- Dogtown and Z Boys, I think is the actual documentary uh there's many music documentaries actually there's a series right now by david grohl on hbo that's called uh, sonic highways Mm -hmm. that looks at these different cities in the u.s and how music developed but what's interesting about all those and i'm sure you can find many other examples is it's always these communities they're they're not always super large communities but it's like uh this one dude had this crazy idea and he thought he was alone but he goes to this one concert and meets this other dude and says oh they're already doing this i can do it too and then they start their own little, little mini community and out of that rises the new york punk movement Mm -hmm. or the skateboarding culture in la or the graffiti culture right or the 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 surfing culture and the impressionists i was just learning about them i don't know a lot about art but it's right you know art history but it's definitely so interesting to see how you kind of you know bounce ideas off each other and inspire each other and it's like oh my friend just got something published in a literary magazine like i'm slacking i gotta get my stuff together and that's right the the william burroughs community the steve jobs community you know Mm -hmm. silicon valley all those are great examples and it and it actually i i actually feel a little sad because growing up i didn't think or know that that's a thing i just think you know i I guess growing up in Colombia, it's like family is important Mm -hmm. and friends are important but i never even thought oh i need a community of like-minded people about my craziness i just thought oh i just think different and i'll do the thing and and i see so much value now in like oh find others not just that you want yes men or something or Mm -hmm. everyone thinks alike it's just more that you bounce off each other but if you're completely on different levels and you're not even into the same things it's kind of harder to find a common ground you know so i don't, I don't know I, I would say that that sounds to me really fascinating love yeah. to read anything you write about it okay usually it takes me between eight months and two years to actually find this Great. piece of paper again that i wrote down and be like oh yeah, yeah. no i'm trying to be better if you do come that. back to it let, <laughs> let me know I'd, I'd love to i will it. yeah so where can sure. people find you online so i'm on facebook i have a writer page it's just um facebook slash paulette is a writer and it's uh, i have a website uh, it's pauletteperhatch.com, and my last name is spelled P-E-R-H-A-C-H. All right. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast, Paul. This has been very interesting. You're welcome. It was fun. That does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Take care out there, and please evolve safely. Evolve safely. And t- check out my latest paper magazine issue. Okay. <laughs> Do I have to say evolve safely? <laughs> no, you don't have to. You can evolve unsafely. Evolve dangerously. Yeah, there is Ooh. a slogan. Man. Evolve on the edge. <laughs> uh-huh.